Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. Family caregivers have always played an integral role in promoting and achieving quality care for their loved ones living in a long-term care facility. The importance of the informal care and support provided by family members for a resident's physical, mental, and emotional well-being became abundantly clear during the pandemic when those essential supports were taken away during the pandemic. Yet, advocacy and engagement by family members benefits not only their loved ones, but ultimately all residents in a long-term care facility. In our conversation today, we discuss how families can individually and collectively, through family councils, be a strong voice for quality and for change in nursing homes. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. I am Lori Smateka. I'm the Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. And we are going to be talking today about family advocacy and family council advocacy for loved ones living in a long-term care facility. Our special guest today is Marcella Goheen, who is a family member of a loved one living in a nursing home and has been a very strong advocate both for her family member as well as for other residents and families that are living in long-term care facilities. So Marcella, welcome. Glad to have you with us today. I love being here with you. I'm so fond of National Consumer Voices work, and it's just an honor and privilege to be of service to your mission and to your subscribers, who I know are all across the country. So thank you for having me. Well, we're just really thrilled. And, um, you know, we've known Marcella for quite a number of years now and are really happy to be able to be talking with her again today. Marcella has been just a really strong advocate um, for her loved one. And um, living in, um, in, in your state, Marcella, um, you know, you really had to become an advocate for your family member just on the fly and, um, and really are having to be a strong advocate for your loved one. And so, you know, maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, the importance of, you know, how you um, recognized the need to really um, be the critical voice for your loved one. Okay. So basically, um, as we all know, <laughs> we went through um, a horrendous time during COVID. Uh, March 12th is the date of that rings in my head of 2020. And um, I had admitted my husband, Robert Victor Viteri is his name. I say it in every interview because he matters. He lives, he breathes, he's disabled. He can't move, he can't walk, he can't talk. He has a very, uh, very rare neurodegenerative process that no doctor can figure out. And um, he lives. And so uh, prior to March 12, 2020, um, I had been caring for him daily at the facility he's at. Um, five to seven hours a day to support and provide bridge care to, I call it bridge care, I call it his neurosensory care, um, um, to assure his movement um, and, and, and cue him um, to keep his body blood flowing, his uh, motor skills, um, to maintain him at, as we say in the resident rights law, the highest level of functioning. And when we were suddenly locked out on March 20, 12, 2020, I presented um, a huge challenge, to say it mildly, of how that care was going to happen, um, not being able to visit because of COVID. So we founded our website, our advocacy online platform, EssentialCareVisitor.com, 
to help families navigate the shock and also create and uh, creative ways and innovative ways to um, advocate for those tasks that the family daily caregiver were performing uh, for their loved one, which, you know, have been age old, you know, over the past 50, right. 60 years, just weren't documented. Um, documented meaning, you know, we always have said, and as you might know, 10% of us in a community, they're every day, there to, you know, um, provide the hydration, provide, um, you know, what the aid can't get to. Um, so how are we going to do that if, if the right. doors were shut? So it was right. a pretty frightening moment. So that's when um, our advocacy began. And I say well, our because I include my husband in that because even though he's nonverbal, you know, our platform online, you know, it's in his honor. And he worked right. in disability for 30 years and he is my partner in this advocacy. Absolutely. And, you know, those of you who um, have worked with Consumer Voice know that we work very hard to help residents themselves raise their voices, self-advocate when they can, understand their rights. But the same goes for family members to support them because there are situations where residents are not able to speak for themselves or to make their preferences known. Um, and they do rely on their loved ones to be their voices and to, to speak for them and to advocate for them. Um, and the other thing I think that was really critical about what you said, Marcella, um, is that we do also recognize that family members are an integral part of the care team for their loved ones that are living in long-term care facilities. And that um, family members supplement to a great extent, family members and other loved ones, other friends, other loved ones supplement to a great extent the care that residents receive, whether it is, as you were talking about, helping with movement or um, providing hydration, even being emotional supports, you know, to their loved ones. And, um, and I think that COVID really highlighted how much support and care uh, the families and other caregivers, essential caregivers provided for those individuals, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I think so too. And it was, um, moment of, okay, I think the facilities were looking, I remember a month before we were locked out, a, a director of nurse or assistant director of nurses came to me and said, they must have known because they said there's going to, there's a virus coming and the family members are not going to be able to visit. And I thought of you. And I thought, I looked at the guy and I was like, you thought of me. And he said, yeah, because you're not going to be able to come. And I just said, oh my God, do you think my husband's going to make it? Because, you know, you don't even know what he's talking about. And right. this person said, Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And he said, absolutely. In hindsight, I think because of the four years prior, the movement, the um, psychosocial supports, the emotional engagement, the nourishment that families provide that the AIDS, especially now, and it's been historical, but um, couldn't get to, he felt like, you know, Bob was at a good baseline of, you know, of having a kind of a surplus that he right. would survive. He's, he's not God, he's not a doctor, but anyway. So I remember that moment and my mind went right to all the things I did for him in the five to seven hours that I, I was there. And every day is very different in a care facility, as we all know, uh, the staffing's different. Um, the regulars might show up, you might have agency aides, you know, the, we know the drill. Um, if you're listening and, and, and you're a caregiver in a 
a long-term care facility. And even if you're an aide or a family member, it's different every day. But there's certain constructs that a family member provide for the ritual of that resident based on their resident rights. So if the resident rights say that the facility obligation is to sustain them at their highest level of functioning, well, how are they going to do that with a short staff? So that's where our family member comes in. And we are, per certain laws, not allowed to do um, certain tasks that the CNAs um, do. But it, quite frankly, that's impossible. And if we weren't to do those things, then um, our loved ones would be declining at a, at a, rapid, at a rapid rate. So um, to your point about the family member being essential, that's exactly what we were crying in New York to all of our state legislature about. Like, you don't understand. You might not have had a loved one in a long-term care facility yet. Um, and we are essential and we can help. And the big cry at that time was COVID risk. Yes, we still wanted to get in. We had no fear um, because we knew that that uh, portion of care was not just supplemental. It was integral. It was, it's, it's life. Um, um, it's life defining. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, to your point of the family advocacy is essential. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, you know, an important reason why we wanted to talk today, um, you know, really to provide some support and education and um, let families know that there are resources available um, and and also, again, how much family advocacy means. And so, you know, I know, Marcella, when we were talking about, you know, doing the, the podcast, we talked about some of the things that were important for families to know. And, and one of the things that you raised with me is how important it is for families to know about what their rights are and how you can really use that information in order to ensure that your loved one is getting better care. And so talk about how you have educated yourself and how you use the information about knowing what the rights are for your husband and how you use that in your advocacy. That's a, such a great question because I have grown in my journey. I was that hysterical family member as we spoke last week where I was just um, hysterical because I was afraid and um, there's a complex grief that's going on. And I always sort of zoom into that emotional side of being a caregiver and the implication of that. So I familiarized myself to your point about education to about the resident rights law, which is federal and each state has its own, um, you know, breakdown of it. But at the gut of that uh, resident rights law is that every resident has a right to be maintained at their highest level of functioning um, on, on, on all their areas of care, as well as to have that representative speak for them and advocate for what the care nuances uh, might be necessary for that person to be maintained at their highest level of care. And in my husband's situation, it's a very rare disease. He's got so many extra things going on. And so the advocacy centers around reminding the facility that it is the resident right to have that person speak for them, especially if they're not able to speak for themselves. My husband is nonverbal, so it's an extreme example. But if someone has a cognitive impairment or um, uh, whatever the person-centered issue might be, um, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, I don't, is, is um, um, that's on the micro level, right? And and I know on that moment when you're advocating and you're in you know first three months or five months or six months of a stay, um, it's scary because you don't know the system. It's scary. You 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 want to speak up, but you don't want to like um, the the fear of retaliation, which I've always believed, and we spoke a little bit about this last week. Is 
it, for me, it's 60, it, it's, it's protected by the retaliation law because you have that right, but it's still right. a very real, real um, concern for on a consumer side that you're projecting onto the provider. And the, mm -hmm. and, and the answer to that is, you know, the resident rights law protect us from that as well. So it's a, it's, how that works on the front lines is I think it's very smart for a family consumer to, in a gentle, kind way, let the provider know that you are absolutely aware of your loved one's rights as a resident living in a long-term care facility. Um, I've been known to quote the law for a 3.10 section F4, which was the gut of my entire lawsuit. Um, and also um, remind them, push back, you know, because I think part of the residents' right law as well, as you know, is that the facility must be making decisions for the care of that loved one, that vulnerable person that's in the facility in the first place um, on the basis of what's best for the resident, not what's best for the facility. So mm -hmm. I remind um, the provider that as well, like is this decision actually isn't the best for the resident, you know, moving this roommate in or out or moving him again in the facility, which is contributing his decline is not the best piece of care for him, even though you're admitting another resident and maybe that's the reason why mm -hmm. you need him to be moved. Um, so that I point out the specific regulation and what might happen on the front lines is the provider might say, well, the DOH doesn't allow us or this. So then you say as a, as a, as a consumer, where does it say that in the regulations? Right. <laughs> like right. I, so using the res the regulations to arm yourself with, you know, right. with the information that you need to advocate. So, yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. But and, and also to your point and um, no interruption at all. I love everything you do <laughs> like, is um, is is reminding them. And this is my growth where not in that, you know, you're on a war and you're fighting each other way in a gentle way, you know, kind way. These providers are exhausted. Um, yes, they make a lot of money. There's that whole argument of you know, everything that's going on right now in the world. But at the same time, the person in front of you, that's the social worker, that is the CNA, that is the nurse, you know, they're not always familiar with these nuanced regulations. And they might, and we know they're being told by the provider to you know, say this, say that, if the consumer says this, then you should say that. And you gently remind them that that is, and I've done that before, um, you know, that's incorrect. And the resident rights law says this, and my husband needs this. And the thing is, too, in that moment, to get specific about what the need is. You know, like, mm -hmm. if you're just shouting, well, the resident rights law, 43.10, section F4, but you're actually in the moment in that resident's home, it's their home, right? Reminding yourself that you're all in that vulnerable person's home and get specific to what the need is. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's not helpful to for the provider to hear you yelling, you know, the law when when you really need is for your loved one to get up at 9 a.m. every day on a regular basis. <laughs> right. So you're focusing in on, on what that person needs, why they need um, that specific care, why they need it done that specific way, because that's something we hear about a lot, it, including from residents is that. Uh, and from family members, but including from residents, which is that, you know, they need to to tell and educate the staff about how they like to receive care or what kind of care they need to receive. Um, and they know best. You, The residents know best. You as family members know best what your loved ones need. Um, and you need you need to be listened to when um, when you say that that your loved one needs care in a certain way or in a certain in a certain manner. Um, and that needs to be incorporated into the provision of that care. 
I think so. And given, I always say, give them the why, like give them the why, because that humanizes the, your loved one, which is already, who's already human to you. You know, you're attached. This is a journey you're on with your loved one, but give this CNA that's standing in front of you, that might be an agency person that might be new. Um, maybe they've been there for 20 years. Even that the nurses that are union have been there for 20 years, I say, and this is why there's a medication thing I have with my husband where he has some very strange swallowing issues that aren't traditional. And so mm-hmm. even if it's a hospital agency aide that's been a nurse for 25 years or a union nurse that's our night nurse 30 years in, I still say to her every day, you know, when you give them that medication at nine, can you make sure the consistency I do it every day and and I give her the why, because, you know, I'm very concerned about his choking risk and I don't I want to have a best outcome. So if you give them the why, like I tell the aides, you know, the music needs to be on when you're caring for him. And the reason why is because mm-hmm. he's a very private person, but he's completely dependent upon you for moving him. And he's very shy. So when you're putting your hands on him, he actually gets very um, embarrassed and kind of um, humbled. And the music is a good redirect for him and actually puts um, a person centered energy in the room whereby, you know, the best outcome is he's, he's uh, in a, a continuum of care that is, um, that is psychosocially comfortable for him because he can't move. I give them the why. And when mm-hmm. they hear the why they're like, Oh, I feel like they feel less criticized, less attacked, um, cause they're drained and, um, they're short staffed and yeah. there's that compassion fatigue that's been there for centuries. And if it's not even compassion fatigue, as you and I speak here right now, it's just complete burnout. So if you give them the why it creates a space of a collaborative, um, consumer relationship where you start to actually build trust and, you know, even if all the regulations and all the high level stuff in this industry is a hot mess right now, and it is, um, at least in that moment where the gut of why we're all here in the first place, um, which is to serve that vulnerable loved one and that resident, you know, that's happening, at least that's happening, you know, so I always right. say give them the why. Right. So building that collaborative relationship is really important. And I think helping them continue to see the the individual as a person with that, you know, as you said, is still is living is has needs has wants has preferences, um, needs to be treated a certain way. One of the things that residents tell us a lot is they want to be treated how you would want to be treated. So think of, you know, thinking about that in terms of how you're providing care, how would you want to be treated if you were the care recipient and to kind of think about that. And um, and by focusing in on the collaborative element of it, you're continuing to keep that person-centeredness at the forefront of the relationship. Yeah, it's a funny moment that I had about pre-COVID where I was caregiver burned out and I was advocating for this one specific piece of my husband's care that repeatedly was not happening. And um, it was a moment where I realized that the AIDS, and it brings tears to my eyes, you know, they really are doing their best. And that, and as much as we zoom out and there's egregious abuse and neglect happening all over the place and facilities across the country because of the climate we're in, um, the frontline um, care uh, has a special community to it that I believe that the consumers can bring 
uh, bring to it, you know, amidst this uh, regulatory nightmare. Um, and I come out of my husband's room and they, the aides were like deciding who was going to watch the word ones in the hallway there, who was going to do what next. And I came out and I, and I said, you know, you guys, my husband is not a Cheerio box. <laughs> and they all just stopped and looked at me and they were like, I go, you know what I mean? If you were working in a grocery store and you were stocking the food, you know, that's one thing. But my husband is not a Cheerio box. He's a person. So this particular, whatever it was, I was advocate. And we all just stopped. There's like this moment, like in a movie, and we all just started laughing. Yeah. And, and to this day, they're like, remember the day you started yelling about a Cheerio box? You know, <laughs> and because it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a societal consciousness that we're working against. Like once someone's disabled or aging or needs um, a long-term care facility or needs to be institutionalized, we kind of, as a, a con conscious collective consciousness, we kind of forget about them, you know? And my goal yeah. ever since my husband got sick is I'm never going to forget about you. And I'm going to make sure we never forget about those around you either. And so um, it's a constant daily practice and your residents in your um, subscriber base uh, which I think is amazing you engage with on a national level is, yeah, you know, they're humans, you know, they're not less than because they're sick. My husband's not less than because he's nonverbal. He's not less than because he can't move. He's a human being. He's not a Cheerio box. You know, he's not a, right. a green beans. And that's, it's, it's funny where at the gut of the advocacy and what inspires me every day is that just very fact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that it's really important, you know, to think of it in a collaborative element, because I, I you know, really want to highlight what you're saying about, you know, um, working with staff and, and, um, and developing that relationship with them, you know, the more we can develop relationships and, and work collaboratively, think of yourselves as on the same team, it's not an us versus them. Um, and, you know, kind of figuring out how to solve problems together that, you know, maybe occurring. I think that's an important part of some of the advocacy that family members can do, you know, certainly on an individual scale um, when you're working with each other. I think so. And I also think that the facility provider is coming from that liability side, like everything's a liability. So there's this dance that happens where, you know, I always say liability, you know, smileability you know the people want to sue nursing homes they want to you know for the you know their debt the negligence whatever and so i think that the facility is is hesitant to enter that collaborative space you know um reasonably so but in our facility we've we've actually moved the needle um very slowly uh, in the worst of humanitarian times you know which is the covid um whereby during covid <clears throat> we couldn't get in and they were starting to do the window visits and that was like eight months in like august september of 2020 and so we knew as families that to see someone through a window was going to be triggering you know you, you hadn't seen them in eight months you only saw maybe their heads from a video chat you you can't touch them through the window when your entire care is to bring that psychosocial moment mm -hmm. to a, a vulnerable one and so we said to our facility, you know, listen, we need, you need a, you know, decompression room or something. And since we can't get in, we need a white tent outside. We're going to staff that tent up with healing um, modules, music, um, goodie bags, um, bunch of family members staying there saying me too. And after they come out of that window visit, 
we're going to be there for them because, you know, they need that. We need that. And we did mm -hmm. that. They paid for the tent. <laughs> the facility paid for the, you know, the white tent. Yeah. And yeah. The family members stayed out there for a week. And we greeted the families coming around the corner who were like sobbing. And yeah. um, that's a win. That's a good win. We weren't playing gotcha. We weren't having people sign a petition. You know, it was a collaborative care nugget. Um, mm -hmm. We also advised them during COVID on how, you know, different things they could be doing inside in order to triage, you know, little things as, you know, the food that was being delivered and the runners and stuff. So that's, that's a really extreme best case example. But on, on the general tip, I feel like the facility is always in this kind of defensive mode of liability. You know, what are they really asking? And I think at the end of the day, the, the starting point is that the facility and the consumer um, are there for the only same reason, you know, we're there to serve these vulnerable people. And it's a banal argument. And I think people laugh sometimes some of the lobbyists for the provider side when I say, you know, we're there for the same reason. And there would be no business if my loved one wasn't sick, you know, you know, the, you're collecting dollars off of their social security number their disability, whatever, they're, they're reimbursable and we're there, you know, to serve them. Um, and, and you can start there in, in the advocacy. And then even happened a couple of days ago um, where I said that, I said, you know, I'm here, you know, we're here for the residents. There's always right. dead silence in that conversation. It right. stops. The, the, the contiguous the stops. Why are we here? We're here for the residents. We're here right. because we're, we're both speaking for them. Right. So let's try to figure out structures that are um, create best case scenarios and outcomes for the care uh, and the dignity of um, the loved one. Right, absolutely. You know, one of the things um, that we've also talked about is the importance of you know families coming together and and you have a pretty strong and effective family council um, in your facility. And um, I mean, family councils are, I believe a critically important part of also, you know, in working towards um, improving care conditions and long-term care facilities, um, both at the individual level, but also systemically. Um, and, you know, I think that, I mean, let's talk a little bit, you know, about the family council and, and how you all work together and how, how you pull, pull people into it. Um, and you know, really how you've worked with the facility. So that that's a lot of different things I just mentioned. But you know, talk a little bit about your family council. Oh, so oh yeah. So our thank you for the question. I love our family council. Um, if it hasn't been for our family council, I think my caregiving journey would have been quite different. Um, our family council has an over 25-year-old tradition. I think we're one of the biggest, strongest in the country. Um Mary Oliver is our chairman emeritus, whose mother lived there 20 years ago, died uh, maybe 10 years before COVID. And when Bob was admitted there, there was this um, group of people who, you know, it was a very, very incredibly impactful family council where they did major collaborations with government um, at, way before Bob and I got there. And then um, COVID hit and they nominated me to be co-chair of it. 
Um, and we grew it real quick because of the need of to about 100, we're about 160 members. Um, we have about 37% engagement. And what that means is it's the 37 people that are very at 37% people are active. Um, but everybody's on the list. And every time we email them, do you not want to be on the list anymore? Even after your loved one dies, they always say no, because we do things that are that create space for them, it, primarily, um, they know they're not alone, but as per the public health law for the people who are listening, the family council serves as um, a group of families and friends. We're family and friends, which we're really proud of and Mary established way back um, where. So if you have a friend, if you're a friend of and it's not your parent or whatever, you can still be on the council and you're a member when you say you are, you know, <laughs> so like there's no dues yeah. or fees. But it's it's a public health part of our 280.Q public health law where we're a group of families and friends at, at our facility um, that advocate uh, for the community of care of our vulnerable loved ones. And how do we do that? Um, we meet once a month. Um, we, from that meeting, we have notes that are on record. So those notes that are, um, that generate the care concerns of the community, whether they're individual, as you said, or they're collective, like if we have five of the people in the meeting saying the same thing, we, we really are very careful and intentional about how we write that note. Um, and even if it's individual, we still put the individual in there and then we submit it to administration who by law has 10 days to respond um, about, I don't use the word grievance. Um, I call care concerns. I think grievances are less less uh, litigious and or don't help the collaborative thing I've always want to be about. So um, <clears throat> they have 10 days to respond. And so that's our monthly meeting. Um, and we ask people to submit their concerns pre-meeting if it's if they have time so that we're on target. And then we usually ask for a speaker to come. I know we've asked you to come um, to speak at our meeting so that the consumer can understand the business, you know, because they don't, it's your first time having a loved one of a silly. You don't know there's a whole other world that's going on that people don't know. Right. So uh, per, per our public health law, at least here in New York, um, the grievances or the concerns are to be, um, shall be considered, it says, shall be considered. I would love that to be must be, but everybody in my government up here says that that shall does mean must, you know, and, um, and then what happens is we, in our notes, we actually put um, potential solutions um, because we want to be collaborative. So we give them solves and they've taken our solves, you know, and yeah. they've worked with our solves. So that's one thing we do. We send out daily affirmations every morning, um, which are positive um, as a caregiver. You, you know, you think you're alone, whatever, from Martin Luther King to Gandhi, to the Bible, to just, um, yeah, it's just a one line email, you know, um, and we do special projects. Um, and right now we're in the middle of an action of advocating really loudly for the staffing levels because they've gotten really, really, really bad. So we take government, um, we take actions with the government and it says that in the public health law that the facility um, cannot stop that. Um, they have to provide you a room to meet. They have to not squash your, when we put notes up in the facility of when our next meeting is, it's against the law for them to in any way um, squash uh, our actions for, um, for, for, for achieving the quality care. And we haven't had that happen in our facility. Um, mm -hmm. We have grown an inch or two that they do understand we're collaborative and they're, oh, that's a good idea or that's a good idea. Um, but we went through the worst of times with them where we did get, have to get very strong about certain things. Uh, but what's, 
great about it is that, you know, I mean, if I was a provider and I had a facility, oh, it seems like it's another layer of yet yeah, over oversight. And it is, you know, but it's from the consumer. Right. right. It's from the consumer. Um, and yeah. One, yeah, it was one more. Go ahead. So, um, I mean, I think um, I, I love the fact that in the um, the notes that you give when you're raising your concerns, you include um, some potential solutions to the concerns, because I think that that is really important. It, it shows that you're wanting to be part of the solution to the problem, that you're also looking for a collaborative opportunity um, as well. Um, I just want to you know, share with the folks that are listening today, you talked about some of the requirements um, in your public health law, and, and you were quoting from your New York law. Um, federal law gives a, a number of the same requirements, and states have some some more specificity. But for those that are listening, um, nursing homes are required to provide private space for a family council. Um, they um, need to provide a staff person to assist the council, um, and that that staff person. Um, needs to be approved not only by the facility, but also by the family council. You need to both be able to approve who that person is. Um, and they need to respond to written council requests promptly. Um, federal law doesn't require the 10 days, but it says promptly. Um, and they have to let you know um, not only um, what their findings were in response to any um, care concerns or um, or other types of, and I know you don't like the word grievances, but that's the language used in federal um, rules, but any grievances that you raise. Um, and they also have to tell you the rationale for their decision and what they're going to do about any of your care concerns. So um, so they've got to, to, re to share those things back um, with your family council. Um, so, you know, and I think, you know, as we had talked before, you know, when you're as a family council sharing um, the, the care concerns. Um, the, to your point earlier about retaliation, this is a way that you know families can protect and support each other who may have concerns um, in terms of raising individual care concerns or other problems that they might be having to do it under cover of the family council because you know working together as a group does help um, unify the group um, and it helps provide some protection for someone who may, be reluctant in some capacity to to raise a concern individually. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, it, it's interesting. The retaliation zone is I always say there's a law that protects us with that, but everybody's different. You know, it's the whole goes yeah. back to one size doesn't fit all one advocate one caregiver is different than the next caregiver and people have their own boundaries of comfort of advocacy. And, and I'm bold, as you know, like I'm like, a, right. you can't talk. I go back to my husband can't talk. It's that it's something I said at your conference, which is like that moment where you're at home and if Bob is thirsty or Bob has a pain in his leg, he can't say I have a pain in my leg or, you know, you name it, he can't say it. So I go back to that. I'm going to be as loud as I need to be in order for him to be cared for. So this retaliation idea, um, I say as well, I'm an extreme case. Like I sued our facility in the middle of COVID and I say, you can sue them and love them at the same time. And there's been no retaliation toward my beloved Bob. So what I say is, um, to your point of if they're afraid, I think that's brilliant, you know, to put it under the general care concern, but also 
also what happens in that moment is our provider will say to us, well, who is it? You know, like who's because they want to get to the resident because they want to get to the person center care plan because they want to solve the problem. And so um, what we do in that moment is we ask the family member like they want to know who you are. Can we give the social worker your number? Like we're we almost become like like junior and budsman, you know, like yeah. and, and they're like, of course. And then we explain to them, like, just tell them this. These are the words you can use. So we sort of mitigate that. But um, this also makes me think of a couple of things in, 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 in your question and your brilliant um, solution of the retaliation and, and a alternative action for a consumer is this individual versus collective idea and then the DOH. So individual right. versus collective, when we, <clears throat> when we first started like doing these monthly notes, not first started, I mean, they were happening way before I came along, but we structured them in very different way as a new co-chair. And um, what would happen is the gaslight thing, you know, this gaslighting language of the provider, they would redirect us back. Well, who's the person? And we would say, no, 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 no. It's not right. who's the person. It's this is a general concern. We've got 20 of those coming in, but who's the person? They just wanted to squash it and to, to not create the policy course. Correct. Right. Right. So that is always a, pushback where we have to constantly go, no, it's, and it's also defying that narrative. Oh, we'll focus on Bob. You just focus on your loved one, you know, forget right. about the rest of the community. No, if it's happening to Bob, it's happening to, you know, patient number 17 who has no family, who is right. maybe a stroke victim, who has no, so no, it's a policy created around the advocacy is to help all. So that's that one individual versus collective that I always have to advocate for and provide language for no matter whom I'm speaking to, or even in that moment where I'm the advocate on the front lines. And I say to myself, Marcella, just focus on Bob. And it's like, I can't focus on Bob. It's Bob is everybody. You know what I mean? Right. Everybody's Bob. So there's that. And then to your point about um, the notes. So I don't know if your consumers know this or, you know, other, I don't know what you get na nationwide, but um, one of the things we experienced uh, a year ago, I think the DO, they were getting their annual survey. But um, the, the DOH of any state is supposed to pick, if you have a family council, they're supposed to take your notes of the year, you know? So we were able to generate all of our monthly notes and like hand them to the surveyor. These yeah. are the trends this year. So it's a yeah. really powerful tool. It can be a really powerful tool for advocacy collectively as you're talking about. And, and I mean, remember, you know, that most nursing home residents don't have regular visitors and family members. So the family members that are in the facility and are working as part of a family council really can provide collective advocacy for everyone there, even those that don't have someone who is available on site to speak for them. Because as you mentioned, um, if, it, if there's an issue happening with one person, the likelihood is that it's happening with other people as well. And so you really can make a difference for more than just your individual loved one by working together. Um, I also loved with you, what you said about your family council um, working collectively to respond to other issues that you see in a bigger way, not just in the facility, but in advocacy um, more broadly. Um, and um, that you have spoken out in a bigger way in your state in order to impact quality issues. You know, you talked about the staffing levels, which, you know, is something that a lot of us are working very hard on right now, but 
Um, but you do have that important voice of seeing what is happening day in, day out, what those staffing levels are, what the impact of that is. Um, and your family council and individual family members can make a difference by sharing that information with your state, with your state legislators, with your national legislators in terms of helping to affect policy that could be more broadly um, focused on improving quality care. And, and thank you for saying that because I feel like when you're on the front line and you feel like you exist in a silo, you know, that you're not making a difference or it's nothing's really ever going to change or, you know, that can go through your head and just, just focus on your family member. But your comment made me have a flashback of Senator Jackson, where we, it was like May of COVID, you know, and um, a lobbyist had said, go to your local, you know, bring your family. So it was me and a lobbyist and like two other family members. And Senator Jackson looked at the screen and said, where are your 400 families? And I said, give me a week. And like cut to a huge meeting with him where it was so profound where every single family member, there were about, I think, 40, the 10%, because at the time we were down to 400 in our census um, through the unfortunate deaths. But there were 40 of us and everyone said their name, their loved one's name. And he was just glaring, you know, at the screen. And that was him saying yes to our essential care visitor bill that we were like, we need to get in, you know, hello. Right. And it was so impactful. And, um, and that journey continued. And then it was eventually signed on March 21st, at least in New York, 2021, or March 20, sorry, 2020 at 9.34 PM. Um, and we remember that because, you know, it, you know, it's, there's power in numbers. And right. it also, even this action we're taking right now about the staffing, you know, it's not okay to have two aides on a floor with 41 patients. It's not okay to have one nurse going to two different floors. Who's there for the emergency, at least right. in my husband's case, if he sees us. And so um, there, it's, it's, it's interesting because the retaliation idea still works in this extreme climate where it's like, well, I don't want to, you know, if there's so, if there's not a lot of care to be divided, I don't want to, you know, cause any more trouble. And it's like, no, if I believe right now, Lori, and maybe you might agree, maybe not, that the families are not, we're not staff, we're not nurses, we're not CNAs, we're not the providers, we're not the administrator, we're not the director of nurses, we're not lobbyists, right. we're not regulators, we're the consumers. Right. Our voice right now is the most important voice with the staffing issues that are plaguing. Right. We're the right. only ones who can say something and say it bold and not have um, retaliation or losing our job or losing. The only thing we're risking is losing our loved one to to neglect and decline and um, dismissal. And um, and that's not OK. So I I always work from that place. We're like, what would happen if we didn't say anything? You right. know, and especially with the staffing right now, it's unbelievably. I don't even have words for it. Like it's basically right. people aren't getting out of bed. I mean, this is statewide. People are shrugging their shoulders. Um, I testified two weeks ago at the budget hearings and I had the privilege of, of, of illuminating these conditions, which seem pretty repetitive. Like I remember saying the same kinds of things in 2021 to the same state legislature. So, you know, our, I say, you know, you, there's nothing to be afraid of except maybe the loss of the life of your loved one for, you know, and giving them a voice. You know, I go there in my mind. Um, right. that that's helpful of what you were asking. 
It, well, it absolutely is. Um, because if, if we don't speak up, we're not going to really say what the impact of these policies are. Because we, as consumers, you are the only ones who can share what that impact truly is on your loved one, on yourself, on your family. Um, and frankly, even, you know, on the staff, because you're seeing and interacting with them on a regular basis. And, you know, we encourage staff to speak up as well, but family members definitely do need um, to be speaking up. Um, how do you in, engage people in your family council and how do you um, encourage them to join? Well, it happens in all sorts of ways. So recent, our win in the past eight months is we've had social workers uh, giving out our number to uh, family members who are stuck or, or just need a, a, a support space um, on the front line. Um, we have a, we're in the middle of our engagement right now. February, March is when we get new engagement. Um, we have posters throughout the facility. We have our email distribution list. Um, I was, we do frontline where basically I was in the facility all day yesterday. Anyone I met, I said, hello, here, do you want to sign up? You know, this is what we do. This is what we're about. And they're like, oh, wow. So we get 10 more members yesterday. Um, and, um, and we have a table, like we, we, we do tabling twice. We're trying this year to do it twice a month. So families have no idea, you know, they're in that moment. And this is something I wanted to absolutely get on record. You know, they're in, when you're in this moment and you know, this, cause this is what you're in entire national advocacy has been about for so long you're in a very vulnerable moment and right. you're, you're coming into this, this facility and you know it's in your mind in our culture it's the worst case scenario if you've landed a nursing home you know that person's been through a lot whether it's right. at home i met someone who's been doing cdpap yesterday and now it's time for his father to be transitioned into institution he's a daily caregiver and he's like well, I didn't know it'd be like this, you know, so we're there for them. Um, but it's a vulnerable moment where um, by the, the family engage council engagement happens just like that on the front lines. Well, do you know about our family council? Well, what's that? Well, this is another set of a community um, for us. It's us. It's us. It's 140 of us. And we're always here for you. Um, to help advocate and help you navigate the system with your care transitions and system navigation. And, um, and also too, you know, sometimes the provider gets afraid, oh, what are the family council members think? <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, we refer them to the ombudsman program. We teach, they don't know these things with that admission packet. You know, yeah. you're in the middle of trying to divvy out the, you know, figure out the assets, who's going to pay for this? Am I Medicaid eligible? When is Medicaid going to, you know, on top of the emotional moment, which I'm very familiar with, of grieving, you know, th this new identity of your loved one, you know, right. and it's so, it's what's potentially like a depersonalization of your loved one. We have to constantly daily work to make it person-centered and it not let that depersonalization happen because they're right. in a different set of walls that you're not there every day. I always say to the staff, I need you. I, if I could do this at home with Bob, right. I would. I can't. Right. I can't. This is a family example of I can't. I did for two years and I couldn't anymore um, because of a lot of things. His condition and I couldn't do what they're doing. So we need them. Right. And we need them to be better, you know. And, and so I think the family consumer more than ever in history is it has a place at the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, why 
it's so important for us to be talking about this today to let family members know how important their advocacy and their voices are for their loved ones, how important it is that they come together collectively in their facilities to connect with each other. Um, and, and, you know, I also want to give shout out to, you know, a number of ombudsman programs um, through the pandemic, not only the important work of the ombudsman program in nursing homes with residents and with family members and with family councils, but a number of ombudsman programs during the pandemic started doing virtual family council meetings in their states. And so a number of them, you know, are doing that so that family members can get support from each other. Um, but the family councils really are critical. And if you don't have one in your nursing home, start one, think about starting one. We have information on the Consumer Voices website about how you can do that and just reach out and start talking to the other family members that are that you see in the nursing homes when you go in to visit your loved one um, and start working together and sharing information. Um, so I would like to share with our um, with our listeners today that, as I mentioned, we have information on the Consumer Voices website at www.theconsumervoice.org about family advocacy, about family councils, about the rights of family councils, um, about residence rights. You can get all of that on our website. Um, and I want to thank you, Marcella, not only for the advocacy that you're doing, both for your husband and for others um, in your husband's nursing home and in the country, because you've been a very strong voice, um, but for joining me today and sharing all of your wisdom and information and being such a good advocate. It's great oh, to have you with us today. No, it's been so much fun. But you know, you asked just to, as a PS to your consumers, the facility also is obligated, at least in New York, to mail out a quarterly mailing about the family council meeting dates as, I don't know if that's a national, a federal, in the federal, but, um, and also in the admission packets. If you do have a family council, they're obligated to put them in the in the admission packets. So that's the other way we get um, recruitment as well for members. Well, those are important things that certainly are absolutely can be done. So again, the, the nursing homes are required to share information about upcoming family council meetings. Um, they need to provide private space for you to meet. They need to respond to any care concerns or grievances and listen to recommendations that you may be having. They need to provide a staff person who's a liaison um, to work with you. Um, so you do have rights um, as a family council. And again, if you have any additional questions, you can reach out to us at the Consumer Voice and we'll provide as much information and support as we can to you. So thanks, Marcella, for sharing all of that great information and wonderful yeah. to talk to you. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having thanks. me. And thanks for joining us today on our podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. This podcast is a program of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information and resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Music